Hi, this is Daniel Aitar. You're listening to Verin Interview. Today I'm going to interview Professor Timothy Snyder about his latest book, The Road to Unfreedom. Hi, Timothy. Thanks for talking to us. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. Professor, could you explain what inspired you to research the roots and the ideas of these Russianist attacks against the United States and Europe? Well, it's what 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 inspired me was the fact that I live mentally in that part of the world, um, in Russia and Ukraine, in Eastern Europe. And what I realized was that things that I noticed, not just me, plenty of people noticed in Russia and Ukraine were beginning to happen in the European Union and the United States. And this raised a larger question, uh, why was it in general that the world was becoming less democratic? Why was it that it turned out that history wasn't over? Why was it that there really were alternatives to liberal democracy, and why did they seem to be winning? So the reason why I wrote the book was that I was convinced that we were looking at a single phenomenon that stretched across the West, from Russia, across the European Union, to the United States, and that the way to understand it was to begin in Russia um, and then to continue on to Europe and and the U.S. So I, I, I started from the East and moved West in the book, just as the trends in the book start in the East and move to the West. And as you say in the title, is the West living a road to freedom? Or we don't have to worry that much yet? Well, I think if you're not if you're not worried somewhat all the time, you probably don't deserve to live in a democracy. Um, I mean, democracy is not a thing that goes on by itself. Democracy is a set of rules which allow people to constrain um, other people, basically. So we should always be a little bit worried because democracy is essentially there to prevent the bad things from happening, which if we don't pay attention, will happen. Now, should, should we be worried now? Well, of course, um, democracy is, is in retreat everywhere around the world, and it's been in retreat for more than a decade. And um, it's, it's, it's hard to know just where, where this trend would stop. The one thing that's pretty clear is that it's not going to stop on its own. Um, so it's, it's partly a matter of, of, of worrying or rather being alert. It's also, I think, more of a matter of thinking about how one can make one's own democracy not just more resistant, but, but, a, but a better place. Uh, because in the, you know, what's, what's happening in politics, I mean, the most important thing that's happening in politics is that the future has been killed. Nobody knows, nobody talks about the future. Everyone either talks about a mythical past that never happened, or they talk about some kind of crisis, real, imagined, or fictional, which is in the present, but we've lost the ability to talk about the future. Democracy needs the future because democracy is about thinking what's going to be best for the next two years, four years, six years. Um, and the future also needs democracy. If we, if, if we don't have democracy, if we're not thinking about those coming elections, then we tend to lose the habit of thinking about the future. There's a point that you say in the book that Ukraine should learn from history to make history. Is, is that your main point? I mean, uh, that's why we should learn at most the roots and how this happens 
to be able to escape these problems and make actual history, offer something new about it. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. I mean, that is a basic a basic point that I'm trying to make that we whether we like it or not, we are in history. The things that have already happened offer us lessons as you say. They also they also present restraints and they also present opportunities. But if we don't have any idea of what was in the past, we're making ourselves helpless. And if we don't think of ourselves as being in a kind of stream of time that flows from the past into the present and into the future, we're unable to plan our own actions. Or if we don't see ourselves in that stream of time, we're unable to move with the stream. We're, una we're unable to make events work for us, and we'll be constantly surprised and constantly caught off guard and, and constantly defeated. So there's another way of thinking about this, which is history is also a sense of responsibility. That is, mm -hmm. if you choose to think everything is new, then you're not responsible because you're always surprised. But if you're aware that nothing is completely new, if you're aware that you're surrounded by things that you can understand or can, and can partly understand at least, then at that moment you have to take partial responsibility for changing those things. Um, so you need history to have a sense of responsibility. And what's ha I mean, largely what's happened is we've given up on history and responsibility at the same time. Perfect. Ben, you explain a lot about how these Russian thinkers, if we may call them that, uh, inspired and, or, or at least were used as some kind of marketing strategy for Vladimir Putin's and his entourage. But if, you, if I may ask that, uh, do you think these Russian thinkers are popular all, also among regular people, or they're mostly a marketing strategy for Putin's personal power and wealth? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on which thinker we're talking about, but some of the people that I write about, for example, Ivan Ilin, are, are read by Russians, and in his case, were read by many, many Russians before Putin actually learned him. My general point would be that ideas matter and that ideas are still with us. That's why I put, that's why I, I took the risky step of starting the book by writing about a Russian philosopher that nobody had heard of. Because I was trying to make the point that ancient thinkers that we never knew about can nevertheless have influence and that the world is not free of ideas, that people are not purely rational, that economics is not the only thing that matters, that even as we were telling ourselves blithely that economics leads to politics and that there are no alternatives. There are plenty of alternatives out there the whole time and important people in the world, such as Mr. Putin, were seizing on some of these alternatives and, and you know, citing respectfully some of these alternative positions. So in, Ru in Russia, ideas do matter. And I would say, I, I would say ideas matter everywhere. We've just chosen, we've just chosen to blind ourselves with the notion that economics determines politics and, you know, history is over, which turns out, of course, not to be true. Perfect. And you say in the book, you, I mean, you dedicate your book to reporters that you call that are heroes of our time. And why do you think it's important to say that at this moment? Because whatever, whatever chance we have of 
recognizing, addressing, and reversing trends like wealth inequality or like political corruption or like global warming depend upon the work of real human beings who travel and figure things out and and write down what they have investigated and understood. There is no substitute for that. Um, the internet does not substitute for that. The internet, people on the internet can pass things on that other people have investigated, but the internet doesn't do any investigation. Only humans actually do investigation. And only humans know which are the truly sensitive subjects, the things that really matter. And those are the things that matter. War, inequality, global warming, corruption. These are the things that matter, and these are the things that the most courageous journalists spend their time trying to figure out. In the particular case of the United States, we, if it were not for journalists, we would just not know the things that we know about Mr. Trump. We would not know the scale of his corruption um, in office and before. We would not know what we were dealing with without the work of basically a couple thousand people. But there's also a broader philosophical point. I mean, just like, you know, physicians help us to be healthy, even though you can't say exactly what health is. Reporters help us to find out what the truth is, even though we can't say exactly what truth is. Just like health, truth is this very important, although not completely definable thing, without which we can't really breathe, without which we can't function in the public sphere, in a democratic society. And so the people who are trying to pursue the truth are, 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 are heroes for that reason as well, not just because they give us things that we need, but also because they're reminding us of a larger ideal without which we can't really do. Perfect. And as a historian, you, you kind of work in a different pace than journalists. But, but I mean, you could actually teach journalists lessons and, and at least give us, give us your opinion about how could journalism get better to establish facts and avoid helping tyrants to amplify their hateful speeches and ideas. Yeah, that, that's a very important question and, and some of the book is about that. I mean, I think part of it has to do with what what we were just talking about, which is which is truth. I think it, it, it's tempting for journalists to um, to simply repeat things that they know are lies because yes. that's an easy story to write. So when Mr. Putin um, orders the invasion of Ukraine, he, he lies about it. And everyone knows he's lying, but it's very tempting to, to simply repeat the lie because it seems so interesting that someone could lie about something so obvious as an invasion. But then the fact that you've repeated the lie amplifies the lie. Exactly. And another temptation that journalists can easily fall into is, the, is, is to accept the two sides of the story are the two sides that they that they first hear but of course you know, powerful propaganda machines know that journalists are looking for two sides of the story and so they provide two sides of the story neither of which can be true or both of which can be distorting and so i i think it is important of course for journalists to seek balance and for journalists to be critical of themselves but just saying You know, this person says X and this person says Y is not the same thing as actually doing journalism. It can, it can, it can very easily be a trap. 
And I mean, the third thing, and this is not so much for journalists, it's for people like us who consume journalism, um, is that we have to pay for it. You know, the, the, the true value comes from human beings who travel and figure things out. And from this point of view, in 2018, we are much worse off than we were in 2008 and much worse off than we were in 1998 around the world. At least in, you know, in the United States, about which I know something, we, we, we have far, far fewer people whose job it is to travel or to live in foreign countries or even to go into the middle of the United States and, and actually spend some time, take a few days or weeks and figure something out and write about it. That job description has, is, is much, much rarer now than it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And we can do something about that. We can, we can pay for journalism. We can subscribe to the Guardian or the Washington Post or whatever it is that we read that actually has journalists. Um, and, and we can try to, and then governments can try, you know, American government won't do this right now, but governments can, can recognize that investigation is actually a public good, just like clean air or clean water is a public good and set up policies to make it easier for newspapers to exist and for investigations to to proceed. Um, so there, you know, there are things that individual journalists should watch out for, but there are also, I mean, there's, there are larger policy choices that have to be made too. Perfect. And uh, I would say that journalism can be a, a remedy against abuses of power, as history can be also. And in your book, you explain mostly about two concepts that are the politics of inevitability and the politics of eternity. Uh, could you just explain briefly uh, these two concepts and, and if they are both at the same time a result of abuses of power, in your opinion? Well, hmm. Uh, they, so let me first explain the ideas. By, by the politics of inevitability, I mean the notion that history is over, there are no alternatives, economics determines politics, capitalism will bring democracy, technology will bring enlightenment, that history is a kind of machine and it's generating um, predictable and good outcomes. The present's going to be like the future. The, these, that's a temptation which people have fallen prey to you know, over the last couple of centuries in various forms. There was a Marxist form, there's a capitalist form, there's a technological determinist form. But the danger of, of the politics of inevitability is that it teaches us that what we do as individuals doesn't really matter because we believe that there's some larger force at work which is pushing history in a certain direction, which is generally not true. The other danger is that um, at a certain point, people stop believing in it. So after an economic shock or after a political shock or confronting growing economic inequality, people stop believing in these stories about how things are automatically getting better. And then they are vulnerable to the second idea, um, the idea which is gaining force now around the world, which I call the politics of eternity. And the politics of eternity says, we are the good guys Everyone else are the bad guys. The same thing happens in history over and over again. The, the people from the outside come to take what we have. History is a cycle. It's not a line into the future towards something good. History is a cycle where we're constantly defending ourselves against, against some kind of a threat, whether that's migrants or refugees or people of another religion or people of another sexual orientation. It's all the same thing over and over again. It just repeats itself. So. Mr. Trump, for example, is a politician of eternity. He talks about making America great again. 
rather than making policy, he, 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 he invokes these eternal threats, whether they're sexual or whether they're racial or whether they have to do with migrants. So the politics of eternity is a way to govern without actually thinking about the future. So when I said earlier, so, you know, the, the main thing which happens is that the politics of eternity kills the future. It makes people forget that the point of government is actually to adapt to future challenges and make policies that will be sensible for five years or 10 years or 20 years. It makes us think that government is a kind of emotion machine which generates crises and reacts to crises over and over and over again. And eventually we, we just forget that government is actually for clean is for you know safe roads and clean air and clean water and educating children and pe- pensions for parents and, and, and things like this um now abuse of power i mean the the i think the politics of inevitability is a kind of complacency about power it you know it invites you not to think what you need to do because you imagine that history is on your side the politics of eternity so enables abuse of power because it allows basically it allows oligarchs or people who want to be oligarchs like Mr. Trump, it allows them um, to to amass wealth or to distract people from the fact that they have lots of wealth by turning by making politics not about not about money, not about justice, not about equality, but by making politics about emotions, about cycles of emotions, which they themselves try to try to orchestrate. So you, in the case of Russia and America, at least, what you see with the politics of eternity is you see men who are either very rich or want to be very rich trying to persuade populations that the state can't really do anything except generate and generate and address these cyclical crises, which are largely emotional. Mm-hmm. And as you explain a lot in the book about how Putin's and kind of uses religious narratives to empower himself. I mean, why do fascist leaders rely so frequently on religious narratives to empower themselves? Well, that's a long and complicated story. You know, some 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 fascists, like Romanian fascists in the 1920s and 30s, believe that they embodied a form of Christianity. Other other fascists um, were secular or atheists. Um, you can't really one can't really say that it, that that fascism and religion necessarily go together. In the case of the Russian fascists who have been revived, um, yes, those people, especially Ivan Ilin, are are Christian fascists, and their view is something like. The world is spoiled. Um, God made a mistake in creating the world. The God is God is only accessible to people who are pure. It so happens that our nation are the people who are pure. Therefore, anything we do is justified because we are the only hope for God to return to the world. Something like something like that. And in that way, you you know, starting from vaguely Christian premises, you can get yourself. Um, into a position where everything you do is justified because you're always correct. Um, in the Russian case today, you can also get yourself in a position where you say, there's nothing wrong with lying because this world is spoiled anyway. So if we lie in the service of Russia, we're actually doing something which is good because we are the world is already spoiled, so there's no such thing as really lying. But whatever we do that helps Russia, we're helping God, right? So you can, that's one form of fascism, but there are plenty of other forms of fascism that dispense with God or ignore God and are not actually associated with religion in any way like this. 
You compiled the last question, Professor. Uh, you compiled almost every example of Russian efforts to undermine democracy in the West. But we have seen some new developments, in, for example, in the Miller investigation after your book was published. Would you add any anecdote to your book now, if you could? Well, I mean, what's interesting to me is that a lot of the things which I wrote about then came up a second time in the Mueller investigation. You know, so the, so I wrote in the book, I, on the basis of, I'll just give you an example, on the basis of the work of Russian investigative journalists, I wrote about the Internet Research Agency and about the fact that the Internet Research Agency employed people in the U.S. as well as Russians in Petersburg to plan this campaign. I wrote about that. It, that particular bit of information became much more public when it became part of one of Mr. Mueller's indictments, but it was actually already in the book. And in a lot of cases, you know, these, these revelations that, uh, that by, by Mueller, uh, which, you know, are important and true, I actually have in the book already in, in context. Now, there are, there are a couple of very, you know, there are a couple of very interesting details to be sure. And like, there, there, for example, the fact that um, in 2000, in 2016, when Mr. Trump and his business um, organization were planning to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, <laughs> um, I have all kinds of detail about that in the book. But one detail I didn't know at the time was that they were planning to give the top floor away to Mr. Putin as a gift. Um, so in the, in the new edition of the book, I added that detail. But in general, I mean, I've been kind of gratified to find that Later investigators, you know, using different kinds of sources or different kinds of approaches have basically been, you know, coming back to the same, coming back to a similar story that I got to starting in Russia and starting from a different place. Yes, F Professor, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, it was when I'm doing this interview with you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Good luck to you. Goodbye.